HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Greetings and welcome to Inside School Food on the Heritage Radio Network. I am Laura Stanley. So Farm to School Month 2014 is coming right up in just two days. Um, so we're, we're getting started early today with the first of five episodes all about Farm to School all over the country. Um, I've been having a lot of fun planning these episodes for you and I hope you will enjoy listening to them. We're going to kick off the series today with a deep dive into procurement, um, how to start buying local if you haven't already, and if you have, how to grow your local buying program, how to seamlessly incorporate it into the way you're already doing business. Um, our guest today wants to make it easy for you. Uh, Christina Connell is a program analyst with USDA's Farm to School program. She's written a guide to local procurement for schools that is so thorough and so super readable and easy to use. Um, I invited her onto the show to talk with us um, about it for the whole half hour, which really isn't nearly enough to unpack everything that's in there, but we will get the process started and direct you to the rest. So Christina holds both her bachelor's degree and a master's degree in public policy from University of Virginia, and she's been with FNS for four years, where she's currently at work on initiatives to localize DOD Fresh, among other pioneering projects. So I'm very excited to have her on the show today. Hi, Christina. Hey, Laura. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, so the work you're doing is central to USDA's effort to institutionalize Farm to School and really take it to the next level. Um, and there's a whole suite of programs and services uh, you guys are engaged in that include research, training, technical assistance, grants. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty heady time to be involved with this stuff, isn't it? 
yeah, I feel just incredibly lucky to be a part of this at this time, and Farm to School is just growing so rapidly, and yeah. I feel like at USDA right now, we have such great support. Um, you know, we have a regional, full-time regional lead in each of the um, Food and Nutrition Service regional offices that are really on the ground helping state agencies and school districts directly. It's just, it's really exciting, um, right. and it's great to see that, although I'm really focused on, obviously, the local purchasing side of it, which is a really big part of Farm to School, um, but USDA is really supportive of all aspects of Farm to School, whether it be school gardens or bringing agriculture into the classroom um, or any number of programs. So mm. it's really, I feel like we're kind of at the, at the tip and trying to figure out how we can support all of these different initiatives. Right, right. So there's a, a whole lot more we will be exploring on the show in the seasons to come. But today we're going to talk about this procurement guide. Um, and, and tell us why USDA decided the guide was needed. Why did you produce it? Yeah, so we started, we've really felt that, you know, obviously there's a lot of support for Farm to School out there through other nonprofit organizations and the non, and National Farm to School Network, but we, we really felt that we were uniquely positioned to really dedicate some resources to developing procurement guidance since they are kind of federal regulations that schools have to follow when spending funds. So we thought that that was the perfect way. There wasn't too much, um, there really isn't that much guidance out there. Of course, there's the regulations, but not much about, um, you know, really logistically, how does this work and how can I target local products? Um, there's kind of tips and little pieces here and there, but we really thought that kind of consolidating this into one guide and try to make it something that would be accessible to all school districts would be really helpful and a, and a powerful thing because although um, obviously local purchasing is, is something that we're very focused on, the guide really dives into the basics of procurement as well. And we were finding that the farm to school community, although it was very active in, in buying local products, may not have been well versed in procurement basics. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to marry the two together. Which sounds like such a tall order, but what really impressed me about the guide and why I'm recommending so highly to listeners that I take a look is that it's actually not very long. It's like 120 pages, including all the appendices. And it's very easy to read, and it's broken up into these easily digestible sections with user-friendly infographics. So, you know, really, a relative beginner can pick this thing up and use it, which is, you know, just great. Um, Who is it directed at, the God? Yeah, we, we really had a wide range of audiences in mind. Um, so far, we've been really working directly with state agencies and, and nonprofit groups that are supporting school districts. But I really think that a school district could pick this up, too, or, or you know, surf to it online and flip through something that they were looking for, or if something was unclear, at least be pointed to a resource that they could go and learn more. Mm-hmm. So we were, we were think of, thinking anybody from a um, school food authority to an individual um, school nutrition director, all the way up to a state agency that this could be used for. Mm-hmm. We're hoping it would be wide-ranging. Right, right. So we'll talk a little bit later about some of the, the pieces, the content, but let's, let's step back a minute and talk about what we actually mean when we say local. It's kind of a fuzzy yeah. term that's widely used. And you you devote a lot of, uh, actually a whole section of the guide into uh, to defining local. T- tell us how that works. Yeah, so this is one thing that is kind of one of those misconceptions or kind of pre- myths that we, we call them farm to school myths. Um, USDA does not have a, have a, have a definition for local. Um, we, the geographic preference rule that was published in 2011, uh, very specifically offers, gives the authority to the school food authority to define local. So we really feel that that autonomy of a school district to define local for themselves mm-hmm. is just incredibly powerful and helpful because 
the definition of local that a school district chooses is going to depend on what their goals are for their local purchasing program. Mm-hmm. And who better, who knows better than, than the school food authority, um, their food shed and the tastes of their children and what would be culturally appropriate for them to serve. So a one-size-fits-all definition that would that would be created by USDA just, just wouldn't really fit all of these different region, unique regions that we have in this country. So we're seeing districts do something very specific for one product. Um, you know, in California, the school districts are able to choose very narrow definitions because mm-hmm. there's such a rich agricultural landscape. Um, but then in other places, people are saying the whole state because that's where they're getting a lot of support is from their state department of agriculture. So, it's really, it's really interesting, and we really feel like that school districts, you know, who knows better? Right, right, right. And, and I know in some cases it's a, it's a mile radius, you know, 200 miles. Some cases it's 10 counties. Um, and then in your guide you even have examples or you say that a district it can define local differently for different uh, categories of products. Yeah, absolutely. So we're seeing, um, I'm glad that you mentioned the mile radius. So like I said, in California, Oakland Unified uses 250 miles as their their definition of local. But then um, in addition to being able to define local depending on what product you're buying or what season you're buying in, a school district may choose to have a tiered definition of local. So there's a county um, in Virginia, Page County, that has three different tiers. So they they very much preference a product grown within their county first, Mm -hmm. but if that's not available, then they'll make the mileage radius, they'll say within 100 miles, and then if they're not able to meet that, they'll actually go outside of the state. Right, right, and so that's it's entirely kind of up to them. They want to, yeah. They're really dedicated to getting local as much as possible. Right. They prefer that as close as possible, but if not, they'll reach out to, right. to other areas. Right, right. So, so throughout the guide, um, there's an emphasis on what you describe, um, and I quote here, a successful, open, fair, and competitive process. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for listeners who aren't directly engaged in school purchasing, we, we really can't emphasize enough how important this is. I mean, school food service directors are public servants spending public money. So they're naturally pretty conservative out of concern. They might be breaking the rules when they make a change. You know, can you comment on that? And like, how does the guide help them through that? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think this is, we kind of got this question from two different angles, right? Sometimes people think that the rules should be more lax for when you're trying to buy local and support your local economy. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes it's kind of the other way, how you describe that, well, we need to always be super conservative and, and question everything. Um, and in which case, every purchase that you're making using federal funds needs to is subject to federal procurement rules. So a lo- buying locally isn't any different than any other type of purchase. Mm-hmm. And it's just reminding people that we are, these districts are spending taxpayer dollars. So me as a taxpayer, I want to make sure that schools are getting the best products for the best price um, and the most quantity that they can get for that buck. But at the same time, I want to make sure that they're getting the exact product that they want. Mm -hmm. So making sure that they're being as specific as they can without severely limiting competition but maintaining that spirit of competition. Mm-hmm. So enabling not being so narrow that only one person can bid, but being specific enough that they'd be happy with any product that, that, was, that would meet their requirements. 
Right. Uh, so I think in the guide, what we've tried to do is, is lay out that while there are these different regulations, there are a lot, there's flexibility built into those. And so it's the school food authority has discretion to decide what, you know, what specifications to use, when to target certain products, um, how much to spend here, where can they save money somewhere else. So I think it's just trying to empower school districts to realize, like, yes, you can do this. You know, we, I always try and say when I'm answering a question, yes, as long as, you know, right. making sure that we're not shutting something down um, before we really examine the flexibilities that are available. Right, right. And, you know, in reading through the guide, to me, it feels like a safety net. It's kind of like we want to do this, and it's been laid out clearly by the USDA um, how we can do it and follow the rules. So um, yeah, it's all there. Exactly. Um, so, and then you lead off, I mean, and really, I think for the benefit of districts who are getting their toe in the water for this for the first time or nearly the first time, so you, you lead off with menu planning. Why is that the first step? Yeah, so in any purchase that you're going to make, you need to decide what you need. So we always encourage districts to start with menu planning, examine that menu. Is there a product that you could just switch in and out? Are you serving a banana three days a week when you could serve an apple from your state? Um, where are the places where you could um, kind of easily replace the product? Um, but it also helps when you're starting with menu planning. It also encourages a school district to kind of step back and look at the seasonality of their food shed. Where are they? What is available to them? Are there products that they're, that they're not even serving that are abundant in their area. So it's just kind of realizing, trying to get people to think outside the box a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I really love in Ohio, they've, the State Department of Education has created a seasonal cycle menus called Menus That Move. Mm-hmm. And it's really great. They have, for each different um, age grade group, they have a five-week menu cycle that really highlights the bounty of Ohio, which is just, it's great. They have menus, they have 50 different, um, 50 different standardized recipes that include all the different, you know, fruit and vegetable requirements of the new meal patterns. It's just, it's really incredible. Mm-hmm. And the other really important part of the menu planning piece is just is asking your providers, what are, what are you providing me right now? Am I already receiving local products and I don't know it? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that I think that's the important part of forecasting too. So in Dallas, at Dallas ISD, they were actually already purchasing a million dollars of Texas-grown products, but had no idea. And so that was just a first a phone call to their distributor and asking, you know, am I getting anything from Texas? And they're like, well, yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. So it was just kind of that one, one phone call really helps. Right, right. And yeah, the last thing, too, that we, really, we always encourage people to do is look at their milk provider. Dairy is, you know, milk has to be served with every meal, um, and dairy is a very perishable, expensive product to ship. So more often than not, dairy is, can be local, depending on that district's definition of local. Right. That, that's often a, a first and easiest claim to make, followed by things like potatoes in some places, right? A commodity. Exactly, yeah. Right, right. right. So, um, so you help districts come up with, um, a, or, or districts help themselves, they come up with a definition or multiple definitions of local that are appropriate and meaningful for them. But these definitions cannot be used directly when, they, when the districts put a spec out into the marketplace. Like, why not? 
Yeah, that's a great question, and that's it's kind of that's another one of those myths that's been out there, misconceptions. So while the geographic preference final rule that I mentioned earlier does allow districts to give a preference for local products, which I think we'll, we'll hopefully talk about a little bit later, mm-hmm. it is very clearly says in that rule that this is a preference, not a specification or a set-aside. So although a district can say, I'm Minneapolis Public Schools and I prefer local and I'm offering this much advantage, they cannot say I'm only requesting bids for products coming from this area. And that's just because at this time, like I said, how the final rule is written, um, the federal rules see that as being overly restrictive. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so what that doesn't is- mean there aren't other specifications you could use right. to target those local products. So, for instance, we often recommend if it's a kind of a perishable fruit or vegetable, a district might define or put in a requirement that the product be delivered within 24 to 48 hours. Or maybe they're going to request a product that is a native variety to a certain area. So there are other ways to kind of get at that local product without specifically defining that. Right, right. And in your guide, you, you, you give us some examples. I mean, the, the two you gave are very creative, and you've got some, some that are even more creative. For instance, you can specify that you would like or you're you're looking for a farmer who can visit the school and talk to the kids, which necessarily means they're going to be very local, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, we've been seeing that more and more because when, you know, as I said, obviously local purchasing is a big part of farm to school, but making that connection is also a big part. So trying to find where there are flexibilities in your solicitation to kind of support those types of activities Mm -hmm. are really powerful. And just like you said, maybe asking if the producer can do a farm field trip Mm -hmm. or coming to your cafeteria one or two days a month, Mm -hmm. that's going to more likely mean that they're local to you. Right. It's interesting because those strategies also help really clarify why local is meaningful. What's, you know, what's special about it aside from local and we've got these attributes. So, okay. So um, maybe it's time for us and our listeners to catch our collective breath. This is pretty dense stuff. Uh, We'll take a station break. Um, You are listening to Inside School Food on the Heritage Radio Network. Today's guest is Christina Connell from USDA Farm to School, and we're working our way through the fabulous very user-friendly guide to local procurement that she authored and that you really need to look at if you haven't yet. Heritage Foods USA has sold pasture-raised, antibiotic-free heritage meats to restaurants and homes around the country. Our farmers raise their animals with care using traditional methods guaranteed to produce the very best-tasting meat. Our pork breeds include Berkshire, Red Wattle, Duroc, Gloucester Old Spot, Large Black, and Tamworth, and our beef comes from Piedmontese, Angus Akiyushi, Belgian Blue, Highland, Simmental, and Belted Galloway cattle. We also carry a rotation of 24 rare breeds of heritage chicken, seasonal specialties like lamb, goat, geese, and of course, heritage turkeys. Visit us online at www.heritagefoodsusa.com or give us a call at 718-389-0985 to place your order today. 
Welcome back to Inside School Food. Today we are kicking off National Farm to School Month 2014 a couple of days early with a conversation about the many ways schools can incorporate local purchasing into their programs. My guest is Christina Connell from USDA, author of a guide called Procuring Local Foods for Child Nutrition Programs, which was released in March. So now we're going to get even more technical. Um, the guide goes into detail about something called, wait for this, the small purchase threshold. Um, and this is really important for anyone involved in <clears throat> growing a farm-to-school program to understand, be they food service, growers, community partners involved in, in facilitating. So, Christina, what is the small purchase threshold? Yeah, so the small the federal regulations make a distinction between depending on the value of a purchase. So the federal small purchase threshold is $150,000, yet um, often states and then even localities will set more restrictive thresholds. And that means that just depends um, or defines what type of purchase you're going to make. So if the purchase is under the small purchase threshold, then Basically, the main distinction is whether or not that solicitation is going to be publicly advertised, which it would need to be by regulation if it were over that threshold, mm-hmm. or if it were an informal procurement under the small purchase threshold, then the purchaser is in, in control of who they're requesting quotes from. That's a great clarification, actually, so, because my next question was going to be, what's the difference between working um, within that or under that threshold and over it? And you basically just explained it so so clearly um so it's the other rules apply but it's this public advertising of the bid that is um not required in the case of a smaller threshold right Exactly. And so it has a really strong implications for buying local because mm-hmm. if you're, if you're buying a product or if you're interested in buying a product that's valued under the small purchase threshold and you know of several producers, local producers in your area, then you can simply just contact those local growers. Mm-hmm. So in essence, guaranteeing that you're going to get a local product because you're requesting quotes just from those local producers. Right, right. Um, so there's, there's definitely a few caveats in there, like you can't split your purchase just to fall below that threshold. Um, but in many smaller districts, or maybe if you're buying a specific product for a harvest day or a harvest of the month program, the small purchase thresholds are using the informal procurement method is definitely a powerful tool when trying to buy local. Right, right. And I know it's hard to talk about it without the help from the visuals that you have in the guide, um, which I have to tell listeners makes all of this like so easy to understand. But I, But I think the salient point to to take away from this is that this is a good strategy, especially um, if, as you say, Christina, you're doing like a a kind of a one-off or a a, a monthly kind of thing, a a farm-to-school month thing, or, or, you know, just uh, as a good strategy for uh, districts that are getting going, starting in farm-to-school. Exactly. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, like I said, I would be a little bit hesitant. Obviously, every time, every procurement is going to be a little bit different. So depending on the value and what you're purchasing, you know, you want to evaluate all the factors. Am I going to get the best price from doing it this way? Um, but again, yeah, I think it would, it's a great way, especially if there's a product that's abundant in your area right. to do that. Right, right. So we can't talk about every strategy described in the guide today. Um, There's so much, and it's, as I said, packed into a pretty small, you know, 120 pages. But I'll say that for for me, at least, the heart of the guide is the section that you title Local From Whom. Um, And it, it pretty systematically goes through every 
possible route through the local supply chain, you know, starting from the obvious direct farm purchasing all the way through to how to use your broadline distributor or even a food service management to get to local. Um, so just to give people a sense of the scope of what's in the guide, but I, I'd like to single out one that you know, a strategy that I find particularly exciting, though it's got a super unsexy name, forward contracting. <laughs> can, can you tell us what that is? Yes, definitely. So uh, to me, forward contracting, that term, as you said, kind of unsexy, is really just semantics. So any purchase is going to be done in advance of delivery of the product, but forward contracting often refers to when a purchase is made far in advance of when that product is going to be delivered. Mm -hmm. And so it's often used as a strategy to ensure that a producer will plant specifically for you. Uh, so it kind of guarantees a market for that producer, but also guarantees that a school district who often requires a large quantity of product will be able to get that from a single producer. So all the same rules apply. You're still going to do a competitive solicitation, but it just kind of offers that guaranteed market for a producer. We've seen some kind of two different models of this happening mm -hmm. in different places. So in North Carolina, they do procurements on the state level. Mm -hmm. And they do contracts every quarter for North Carolina-grown products, um, or they're targeting North Carolina-grown products, I should say. And one of the successful stories from that that I've, I've heard is that they really wanted to be able to serve watermelon in September when kids were coming back to school. Mm -hmm. But traditionally, the watermelon season ends in July or August in North Carolina. So, But because the North Carolina did a forward contract several months in advance of when that product is going to be delivered, they actually were able to get the growers to plant a little bit later mm -hmm. to enable them to be able to serve North Carolina watermelon in schools in September, right. which I think right. is just really cool. Yeah. Um, and then another, the second way that we've seen a couple different states do this is in, in Oregon, the state farm to school coordinator works with a distributor that the school district has already competitively procured, mm -hmm. um, but the state farm to school coordinator works directly with the distributor and producers to set up agreements between them. So the school district isn't even involved. They've just already procured their distributor. They know they're going to get these products. They've showed preference for local, and then it's up to this farm to school coordinator to develop agreements, forward contracts, or forward agreements between growers and the distributor. Yeah, yeah. And this, for, you know, for, for small farmers or farmers that don't and are not involved um, in kind of large scale institutional food service or selling to that, this could be a game changer because basically they're, they're guaranteed a big purchase. Um, you know, any examples yeah. of, of, you know, regions or individual farms that have had their livelihoods turned around by this? Yeah, I mean, I would I would point to North Carolina again. I mean, I think they have just a really strong state system and that they've been able to support so many different producers. Mm -hmm. So all, with that watermelon example, they're not just buying from one farm. They're actually buying from, I think, five or seven different watermelon producers, mm -hmm. which has really helped and not extended their growing season. I mean, they were still able to offer watermelons in the summer to their, to their regular markets, uh, and then they're able to do another planting to be able to supply watermelon in September, which I think is just is a total game changer. It really helps right, right. helps those producers along. I mean it's it's definitely a win for the growers and, and it sounds like it can really be a win for the for the school district involved in this too. But there there's also some risk. I mean a storm could come and take out the, the squash that you're expecting and, and then what? You know, how do you build in a safety net um, if you're going to be doing this forward contracting? 
Yeah, absolutely. And we've seen that happen a couple of times, too. I know in, in Portland Public Schools, they've, the first couple of times that they tried um, some forward contracting, it kind of fell through or, you know, Mother Nature got in the way and they had contracted for um, for spinach, I think it was, mm-hmm. and then then the spinach crop failed um, or was much smaller than expected. So as, you know, always in a contract, you want to kind of have a contingency plan, what's going to happen when that's not available. Mm-hmm. So, you know, pretty much every school district in the country is going to have a mainline produce distributor. So making sure in that contract that they've not only reserved the right to purchase from other growers, mm-hmm. but also shown that kind of given the full vision or the full picture of what they would need if their other contracts don't come through. Right, right. And, so and being totally transparent up front. Right. And and again, this this may sound complicated just hearing Christina talk about it, but in the guide, it's just made so very clear and simple. Um, so um, and I'm, I'm going to go, this is in the guide too, uh, but it's a little bit off topic. Um, we, we're starting to hear um, more about districts using DOD Fresh to access local. I know this is an evolving situation that you're very much involved with, and we, so we're going to return to it on Inside School Food. But just tell us a little bit about, you know, what's going on in that area. Yeah, I think there's, um, like just like you said, Laura, that there really is just so much opportunity with UAD Fresh. I'm really looking forward to the next couple of years to see what we can do there. Uh, but we are, UAD Fresh um, offers a way for districts to use entitle, it's kind of a different set of funds, USDA Foods Entitlement Dollars, on fresh fruits and vegetables. And those fresh, fresh fruits and vegetables are often local because DOD contracts with 40, 47 different produce distributors across the country. Mm-hmm. So in some areas, like Texas and Vermont, we're actually seeing, already seeing, seeing a ton of success with those distributors offering local products. I think it's something like 12 or 15 percent of all the products that were, all the purchases that were made last year were actually local. Wow. In in DOD, which is a a pretty big number. Yeah. But we're also seeing, we've seen a great model in Texas where they've worked with their DOD fresh distributors to create kind of a harvest of the month calendar. So they're kind of ensuring that local products or Texas-grown products will be offered throughout the year. Mm -hmm. And those products include things like oranges and grapefruit and potatoes, so very traditionally Texas products. And so we're trying to replicate that model in the Midwest with with a distributor based in Illinois that delivers to Wisconsin to see if they're able to, you know, maybe it's not even a harvest of the month thing to begin with, but maybe it's harvest of the season. So trying to get local apples in at first and then maybe moving to a next product. Right. So we're, we're, I think there's a lot of work to be done, but we're definitely seeing some, some great success there. Well, I look forward to following that story and you'll let me know when it's ready for prime time because um, that's pretty yeah. exciting. So, so finally, I, I, I know this is not a tool that every district might want to use, but it's, you mentioned it earlier and I'd like to talk about it just a little bit. Um, geographic preference, you know, what is it and what does the guide provide for districts that want to give it a try? Yeah, so geographic preference, like I I mentioned earlier, was authorized uh, by the 2008 Farm Bill, and it it basically clarified and and asked USDA to create a way for schools to give a defined advantage to local products. Mm -hmm. So a district, but the kind of the great thing, too, is that FNS um, offered a lot of flexibility in how that can be Uh, be applied. So not only can districts define local however they choose, they can actually apply geographic preference in a variety of different ways. 
the final rule does not specify a particular way that it needs to be applied, mm-hmm. um, but it just gives a defined advantage to that local product. Mm-hmm. So in the guide, we I give kind of three different, three specific examples of how a school district might apply geographic preference. And I should say, too, that geographic preference could be applied in any any type of procurement. So before we talked about informal procurement, and mm-hmm. it could be used there, but it also could be used with a, you know, a million-dollar uh, contract for a produce distributor. Mm-hmm. It really is wide-ranging, and it can be used for a variety of different things. Um, it can be as simple as taking, giving the, if, if the vendor meets your definition of local, giving a preference of $0.10 cents per pound. Mm-hmm. Um, or it could be more complicated and creating kind of a tiered system and taking off um, a certain amount of certain percentage off of their bid. Um, but it's a great way to kind of to give that, that um, kind of give the advantage to the local product right. without specifically specifying local. Right, right. And, and again, the guide really, with geographic preference especially, really unpacks um, the, the different ways this could be accomplished visually. So anyone who wants to understand this better, that is really your, your best starting point to understanding geographic preference, in my opinion. Um, so, mm-hmm. Christina, a farm to school, you know, as we said earlier, is like wildly successful now. It's growing and it feels to us that it's gone mainstream. And yet there are still a lot of districts that are not participating. Um, you know, what, what's your pitch to a busy food service director who is hesitant to get involved? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, that's my team's goal to try and make farm to school accessible and pragmatic for every single school district in the country. You know, it's our vision that eventually a local product would be available to every school ch- school child. Um, we've seen really great successes, and the most off-cited advice that I've heard from school districts is baby steps. There's no reason to jump in all at once. Mm-hmm. It can really start with one product, you know, once a month, one day, once a month. You know, it doesn't need to be kind of big changes. And so one uh, one example that I like to cite a lot, I, I work pretty closely with Andrea Early and here. Harrisonburg City Public Schools in Virginia, and she's just done a fabulous job of kind of patching together different procurements that will meet that meet her uh, district's goals for buying local. Mm-hmm. So she uses geographic preference when she's trying to buy local beef, but then she uses the informal procurement method when she's trying to buy seasonal produce at the local produce auction. Um, but also in her distributor contract, she shows she lists different different varieties of apples, showing preference for the Virginia grown apples but also taking in other product, other varieties of apples when those aren't readily available. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just a great example of trying to make buying local just part of the routine. It doesn't need to be something extra. It feels like it at first, but it really can be integrated into all of your normal purchases. So I would really hope that, um, you know, when you're, once you're seeing those those it become part of your routine, you're going to see other changes too. As mm-hmm. soon as you start marketing that, we've seen participation rates go up in districts that have adopted farm to school. Um, we've also see, cited um, or seen schools cite that they've seen higher academic achievement or that kids are returning to the classroom kind of 
more ready to learn. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You just said a couple of magic words there, marketing, participation, and uh, academic performance. Wow. Uh, We need to explore that more on the show. That's pretty exciting, Christina. Uh, so listen, thank you so much for digging in with us today. And thank you for creating this remarkable toolkit. Um, listeners, you can find a link to the guide and to USDA farm to school on the inside school food, Facebook page and the new inside school food website, which will be going live in just a couple of days. So stay tuned for more info about that. You can also get directly to the guide and a lot more by visiting usda.com forward slash farm to school. You have been listening to Christina Connell of USDA Farm to School on the Heritage Radio Network's Inside School Food. I'm Laura Stanley. And, folks, we have four more Farm to School episodes coming your way. Next week, family farms dominate the agricultural landscape of the lower Michigan Peninsula, growing lots more than sour cherries. Um, Join us to learn how the Traverse City Area Public Schools is drawing them into the local K through 12 supply chain. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.